everyone, and welcome to the 26th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Grossman. I'm CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit think tank dedicated to engaging young audiences with the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways. Today, we are joined by a friend, a mentor, a woman I greatly admire and am proud to uh, call a member of the Atlas Society community, Anne Heller. She is author of, uh, I believe, uh, the leading and best biography, one I've read many times, of Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand and the world she made. Um, before I want to get into further introducing Anne, I want to also remind all of you that are joining us on Zoom, we have a record uh, registration today. You know how to ask the questions, just type them into that Q&A box. And all of you that are joining us live on YouTube, just type your questions in and to the comment section, I will get to as many of them as possible. Anne Heller is a magazine editor and journalist. She's the former managing editor of the Antioch Review, a film editor at Esquire and Redbook, uh, and the executive editor of magazine development for Condé Nast Publications. Most famously, of course, as mentioned, she is the author of Ayn Rand and the World She Made, published a decade ago. Um, Anne is also author of another book I highly uh, recommend, uh, Hannah Arendt, A Life in Dark Times, also available on Audible. Uh, she serves on the board of directors for the venerable NYU Biography Sem Seminar and is a fellow of the New York Institute for the Humanities. Welcome, Anne. Thank you for joining Thanks, us. Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here and to see you. And you too. And uh, fun to chat about your um, beautiful Thanksgiving that you have planned up there in upstate New York. So, um, Anne, I know a little bit about this. You and I have uh, talked about this over uh, breakfast at the Harvard Club, um, but and, and you mention it also in the book, but share with those who are unfamiliar, the origin story, because you had not been a early fan or even uh, that familiar with Ayn Rand, but you came to learn about the author in a roundabout way. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Well, um, I was, uh... Let's see, I, I can't remember what year it was, but I was working on a magazine at Condé Nast on a brand new financial magazine, Money Magazine. And one of the uh, writers who was working with me on this was Susie Orman, who one day sent me by email uh, the entire um, money speech from Atlas Shrugged and uh, asked me if it didn't sound like her. And I read it. And I was flabbergasted by it. Um, I'd known about Ayn Rand, of course. I'd never read Ayn Rand when I was young, as many of my friends and acquaintances had. Um, I just didn't think she, I thought she was a bit of a hack and certainly um, uh, a, a teacher more than a writer. And she uh, had a weird effect on many of my friends. So it wasn't until that time after I'd read the money speech and thought, well, how about this? This is the most elegant, uh, closely reasoned uh, defense of a kind of capitalism I'd never believed in that I've ever encountered. So I decided to read Ayn Rand and I read 
all of Atlas shrugged and then the Fountainhead and then We the Living because it was, I was a sort of more literary than philosophical person. And then later on the essays and uh, the interviews and plays. And um, then I decided I wanted to write a life of Ayn Rand, which um, no one who hadn't been associated with her had done. Well, that, so that actually uh, leads to a, a couple of questions. Um, you re reference in preface to one of your chapters, Rand's note to the readers of The Fountainhead in 1945, in which she said, when asked about myself, I'm tempted to say, paraphrasing Rourke, don't ask me about my family, my childhood, my friends, ask me about the things I think. Uh, and it's a reference that I think sets up this next question from our, our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks. He says, some people love biographies because they think knowing the person better enables them to know the person's work better. Others avoid biographies because they worry that knowing the person's personal life will detract from their appreciation of the person's work. Um, Ayn Rand's reference uh, to Howard's work seems to suggest she might fall into the latter category. What are your thoughts? Well, I think she did fall into the latter category. She did talk to friends about herself, but what she had to say about herself and her background, I found was not always reliable. Um, she, she had created a persona and that persona created her books, I suppose. And uh, as well as her literary skill and her intense determination to, to succeed and to produce something that she thought the world needed. But what I was interested in is a, a series of questions really. What allowed her to be so fierce? Um, what allowed her to defy all conventional niceties in both in the ideas that she presented to the world and to the way she presented them? Um, how did she get to be this character who could carry the message that she thought she was born to carry? Lots of us may think we have a message, but we just don't have the, uh, the whatever it is, the, the other qualities that allow us to carry it. So I, I wanted to know that about her. Um, and I, I, as a biographer, my approach is to find in the most particular way I can how the life and work track each other, how they intertwine, how they give rise to each other. Because the work of course changes the life as the life changes the work. I don't know that anyone knowing more about Ayn Rand's life would read her uh, work with more um, pleasure or even more insight, but it's a different genre. And her life is fascinating and the way it affected her work is fascinating. I think it is um, fascinating and as somebody who appreciates her literary work, appreciates her philosophy, um, I also appreciate, I think it on a deeper level as a woman, um, knowing about her roots, uh, knowing the particular context and time in which she grew up and came to flower, you know, as a professional woman that the, the odds were uh, against her. And yet it was this quality which 
transcends gender and even cultural context of determination, of independence, of perseve perseverance that, um, that you see, which I believe takes on an even greater heroic quality uh, given the many, many challenges that, um, that were stacked against her. Now, speaking of uh, a challenge, um, tell us a little bit about the process. How long from the time that you had that exchange with uh, Susie to talking with the publisher, getting the go ahead, doing the research, give us just a little snapshot of the scope of work. Well, I suppose it took me about maybe four and a half or close to five years altogether from first having the, uh, the thought that I wanted to do this, then to writing a proposal, um, which in those days, I'm not sure this is still true, but it was a very long and detailed document. Um, then um, finding a publisher who was interested in, in a book about Ayn Rand, and to my surprise, really, all the publishers were interested in a book about Ayn Rand. It was as if her time had come. I couldn't believe, first of all, that there hadn't been an objective or a set of objective, you know, dispassionate, removed biographies of Rand before then. Um, there was Barbara Brandon's marvelous book. There was Nathaniel Brandon's memoir and very little else. Um, so she'd been a controversial and a not beloved figure in New York liberal cir circles, which includes most of the publishing world. But um, in 2005, when I proposed this book, publishers were eager to, uh, to, to publish it. So then it, uh, I went about, first I, I interviewed, I, I interviewed and worked in the archives simultaneously. And I tried to track down and interview people by age, the oldest first, the youngest could wait. Um, and it was very hard because many of Ayn Rand's living acquaintances were suspicious of someone who they never heard of, didn't know, lived in New York, who wanted to write a book about someone that they cared very deeply about. So it was a long process to win people over to talk to me. It was one of the more uh, rewarding parts of the process. Um, I, you know, it was a long process. I hired Russian researchers to find out who she really was and what her family was in Russia. Nobody knew anything about that. She did not talk about that. And luckily the archives had just opened up in Russia and all sorts of information became available over the course of three or four years as they dug. Um, and, uh, and so on from there, all the while, of course, I was writing as I could and filling information in where I found it. And it was a really, uh, it, was, it was a delightful process. Well, speaking of uh, doing the research in Russia, in the second chapter of your biography entitled Looters, uh, which covers the period of 1917 to uh, 1925, and it ends with this dramatic scene in which her family sends her off by train after which the father, her father turns to her mother and says, just wait she will show the world who she is. And you closed with Rand did show the world who she was and the world took notice. She never re um, returned to Russia, but in some ways 
she never really left. What did you mean by that? Well, I'm not sure I'm not embarrassed by that sentence now, but uh, what I intended to convey- Great sentence. <laughs> of course, she did leave Russia and she did leave Russia behind in many, in many uh, ways. But in many ways, I think she really didn't. I think she retained some of the qualities uh, and prejudices, if you will, that uh, I at least associate with her Russian background. She favored literary production over direct political action. She wanted to be a writer, not an activist, although her, her, um, her convictions were largely social theory and political. Um, and she, uh, she valued all production over consumption uh, for which she had, you know, in spite of her reputation, I think she had a good deal of contempt. Um, certainly uh, consumption without meaning she had contempt for. I think that's a Russian quality, um, a Russian ethos. Um, I think she embodied a form of severity, even extremism that despises compromise. And I think that's a product of a you know, thousand year heritage where there is no compromise. There are rulers and there are the ruled and the rules come up with literary productions that are ideological, that are in opposition to the ruling class, but there's never a chance to compromise with the czars or the aristocrats. And um, I think she's constantly arguing with the Russia she knew, with its people's passivity, with their fear of a money culture. At the time she lived there, you know, not, perhaps not now. Their resistance to capitalism and a kind of sentimentality that is Russian and that I think she despised. So I think there's a dialectic going on there. That's fascinating. So you um, talking about the origins and the, the timing of the publication saying that Ayn Rand was kind of, a, that it was her time. So um, of course, also there was another biography that came out uh, around the same time, I believe, uh, uh, Jennifer Burns um, biography, Goddess of the Marketplace. And then you referenced, of course, um, Barbara Brandon's biography, The Passion of Ayn Rand. There's a lot of controversy around that, but like you, I read it many, many years ago. And I, uh, after already having read Ayn Rand's work and um, I, I didn't find it, uh, I, I didn't come away thinking less of, of Ayn Rand. I actually came away thinking more of her for the struggles that she went through um, and the, the humanity of it. So um, how would you, how does your, biography fit in to the other, the, the other biographies? How does it uh, differ? And, uh, and last of all, how did you choose the great title, which kind of encapsulates a lot of what you're presenting in the book? Jennifer, I have to admit that I never read uh, Jennifer Burns's book about Ayn Rand. Um, and I spent so much time with Barbara Brandon's book um, and I'm so indebted to it because she recorded things that otherwise would have been lost. So I can only answer with respect to that. I think Jennifer Burns's book is more interested in 
in Ayn Rand's um, uh, part in the intellectual history of the conservative movement. Yeah, I, I think that's fair that she spent more time looking at the interconnections uh, between her work and the uh, political developments and people that were inspired by her. Um, also, you were uh, not granted full access to the to the archives, but sounds like you did have some access. Was that part of what you were talking about before that there were people that were uh, mistrustful or kind of jealously guarding their assets? And, and do you feel that, how much did that limit your work or how much did it actually kind of spur you to find other other sources that were uh, that would provide more more context and different perspectives. Luckily, I think it was the latter. Uh, Jennifer did have uh, access to the archives. She was a graduate student at Berkeley, I believe, when she started her book, which started as a graduate thesis. And the Ayn Rand archives were very inviting to uh, graduate students who wanted to um, work. Uh, on Ayn Rand. Um, I think they were surprised when a book came out of it. Um, but I, uh, I was not granted access. However, um, I think I was able to rep, in fact, I know I was able to rep replicate almost everything that I needed because in the archives. Uh, I was invited afterward to come visit and to look through them after the book was published. Um, I think they might have regretted that they didn't allow me access to it. And I really didn't find anything that I hadn't been able to find otherwise. I traveled all over the place. I went to li libraries all over the country to read the letters that her, um, that her correspondents received from her. I went to Toronto to listen to all the tapes and look at all the notes that Barbara Brandon made when she um, and she was working on her book 20 years before many of those people were dead. Uh, a collector had bought the, uh, the tapes and notes and so on uh, at, a, um, at an auction. And I tracked him down. It wasn't easy. He found him, convinced him to let me come and organize his archive in exchange for um, having access to the material there. And, you know, I interviewed everybody I could find. So... Um, you know, I, th I was satisfied at the end that I had no questions that could be answered that I hadn't been able to answer. Uh, how did the title come about? I was, I think I was talking to a friend one day in the middle of working on the book. I'd had a list of titles, none of which I liked. And I was telling this friend about this whole world that it was almost a sealed world as I was thinking about it then that Ayn Rand had managed to create in which a certain kind of hero, certain kind of extraordinary character could live in freedom and peace and with all his, you know, with perfect productivity. And suddenly it came to me that, that, that she had made a world and that she'd been making it from novel to novel as she went along and that she finished it again with Atlas Shrugged. And so the title just seemed something. I thought it, it's a beautiful title and it 
resonates and echoes uh, what Ayn Rand herself has said when she expresses how part of the inspiration for creating Atlas Shrugged is almost out of a loneliness, you know, of, of wanting to find heroes, to find peers, to find people that she could look up to, and then creating them, creating that world in Atlas Shrugged. And uh, it's interesting, your, your story uh, about how, um, how you, even with the limitations and perhaps because of the limitations, because of the saying, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to give you access, you can't be in our club, that you're inspired to, to work harder, to be more inventive, to find a way to figure it out. And I think one of the ironies, and I, I, I have not talked to Jennifer, I would love to have her and we'll see if we can reach out. But uh, every time I've seen over the past few years, when she writes uh, an, an op-ed or a piece, it's always like Ayn Rand is dead, long live Ayn Rand. And I've uh, you know, never seen her at an Atlas Society event. She's, uh, other than having access to the archives, I don't, I, you know, she hasn't expressed sort of an ongoing interest, kind of authentic interest in wanting to continue on the, um, the journey. So uh, speaking of those op-eds, you and I were sharing a little kvetch earlier about a recent op-ed that uh, was published by Paul Krugman in the New York Times blaming Ayn Rand uh, and her ideas for millions of, of COVID deaths. You've received an interesting query from the grandson of Malcolm Mugridge. I'll let you tell the story. Uh, he too read that op-ed, so many people that I know read that op-ed and were so offended by it. Um, uh, Nathaniel Brandon's uh, nephew in France wrote to me and said, can you believe this? And um, a, somebody I didn't know and had never heard of, uh, Matthew Muggeridge had read it and was so offended by it that he decided he needed to find something out about Ayn Rand and read my biography and then wrote to me and we've been writing back and forth about it. You know, the, the, the title of uh, Krugman's op-ed was How Many Americans Will Ayn Rand Kill? It's since been changed online because it's just too egregious. Um, and I think the answer is like maybe none. First of all, she's dead. Secondly, uh, ideas don't kill. And thirdly, the politicians who use her name and you know claim that they're speaking about freedom can't certainly automatically be uh, said to represent her, which they don't for the most part. And more important, Ayn Rand explicitly uh, endorsed government quarantine um, in the case of, as a rational response to contagion. I think the Ayn Rand Institute is now uh, put online a, um, an audio tape of her talking about how the government should, should quarantine people when there's a contagion abroad. Um, and the, the text of the op-ed had nothing to do with Ayn Rand whatsoever. And if you think about it, Krugman could have used Ayn Rand's statement against uh, a for quarantine against Trump 
if he had just bothered to look up what she actually said about it uh, and weren't so um, regrettably lazy, if you don't mind my saying so. So that was very annoying to me. And it's just, it's emblematic of how Ayn Rand's name is used so often to sell copies of things. He called his, his he used Ayn Rand's name in his column, in my opinion, simply so that people would read his column. Uh, it had, he didn't mention her again in the entire column. So many people like to rouse uh, people by falsely invoking the name and ideas of Ayn Rand. And um, <clears throat> it's very annoying. It's very annoying, but it's also a tribute in a way. Uh, our founder, David Kelly uh, and I and Professor uh, Richard Salzman had a webinar, uh, a chat, which those of you watching, you can, can find on YouTube and on Facebook in which we uh, discussed the smear. And one of the, my takeaways was that Krugman didn't say Ludwig von Mises is responsible. <laughs> he didn't say Milton Friedman. Right. You know, he, he didn't say Thomas Sowell, he said, Ayn Rand, why? Because Ayn Rand is still relevant. And to the extent that there are those, as you correctly point out, that find utility in uh, trying to make her more radioactive or leveraging her controversy to sell a column or advance an agenda, uh, they are continuing to, to grant her relevance and I think that that is probably not what they intended, but it's certainly a, a double-edged sword to say the least. Um, I want to encourage those of you that are joining us today. We have a wonderful opportunity and um, I'm going to jump in and take some of those questions now. Uh, but I also wanted to ask another question that um, our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks provided. And he said, how does a biographer handle the challenge of biased sources, those who love or hate the person and, and so slant or omit or make stuff up about the subject? Is it just that you're going and doing so much extensive research that you're confirming and you're kind of it's coming into a pattern or do you, how, how do you do that? That's a great question. I love that question. And it's, you know, it's something that all biographers uh, and all journalists to some degree uh, face. Um, you know, uh, biography isn't journalism, so nobody gets a say in a book that I'm writing. Um, it's I who have the say. And I interview people over and over and over again. And I check and double check everything they tell me. And, you know, I ask others to confirm or add nuance to what I've been told on, on important subjects um, and on details as well. And in the end, if something seems a little bit too convenient to the person, for the person who's told it to me, but it's important to report it, some things I just leave out because I don't know whether they're true or false. I have no way of confirming them. And uh, so they just don't make it into what I'm writing. But if something is important and the reader needs to know about it, and it's, I, I, um, I always uh, 
say, you know, this, as this person said, sometimes I treat things with a little bit of irony. Sometimes I write a footnote saying, you know, this person had an interest in saying this. Usually I'm able to signal in the text itself that this is a dubious piece of information. You know, uh, handle it with caution and put it in context with the rest of what you're reading. But it is, it's a one, it's a, it's a, it's a problem for every writer of nonfiction. Yeah, so um, by the way, uh, Chris Scarborough is here and he says, hello, I hope I'm not, <laughs> he uh, appreciates your response on Krugman and he is delighted to see you. So um, Samantha Atkins, uh, I am, don't have any doubt where she's getting her information. Um, and she's, I think, mischaracterizing what you said. She's saying that you said, which you didn't. Rand's, saying Rand's integrity is from a 1,000 year heritage is bizarre. Uh, that is determinism, not the reason she most upheld, she would very much despise such a thing. You, you get the little takeaway words that uh, you kind of can tell where they're coming from. Um, I don't think you were saying that uh, Ayn Rand was determined by her heritage. If, if anything, you're saying quite the opposite, but you're saying that no, there were... I must say I disagree probably with Ayn Rand about um, to what degree we are as, as human creatures, even the most brilliant of us, in some ways informed by our background the historical context in which we grow up, the things we see and learn and experience even before we're able to describe them to ourselves. And it, I, I certainly didn't try to represent those things in Ayn Rand's life, but um, I do believe that, um, that the fact that she was raised for the first 21 years of her life in Russia, first in a czarist, in an anti-Semitic czarist regime, and then in a, in a status regime that she so brilliantly captures uh, one way or another the evils of in all her work, um, you know, had an effect on her. And she preferred to think of herself as fully developed, I mean, fully self-made. Uh, it just happens to be a disagreement I have with her about how self-made any of us are. I particularly enjoy the passages and the research into her relationship with her father and um, the admiration, the bond that she had with him, how it deepened um, in later years when they got to spend more time together and how uh, she saw him choose not to work, uh, saw the mother working and, uh, and then wove some of those themes into We the Living. Absolutely. Uh, Amanda Shoemaker wants to know, what was it like uh, being in Russia researching the book? Were you, did you spend time in, in Russia or were you corresponding with people there? I have been in Russia. I was in St. Petersburg in the very square where Ayn Rand was raised in St. Petersburg before I ever knew that I was going to write this book. Um, when I was working on the book, there was no point in my going to Russia to do any research because my Russian, you know, I don't read Russian or speak Russian. 
and because I had no way of gaining access to any of the most interesting archives that were opening up month by month as I worked on the book. So I got in touch through a professor at Harvard with a research team in St. Petersburg and Moscow who were uh, very familiar with the archives that were opening up and where to find all sorts of information. And they were the ones who, who did that work for me. I'd ask them questions, they'd go to different archives and try to find the answers to them, tell me interesting things they'd found that I, I hadn't thought to ask. And that's the way that worked. Great, well, speaking of asking questions, we have a lot of people on Zoom chat and also on YouTube. So everyone take advantage of this opportunity and ask the question of Anne. Um, I have another question, Anne. As a biographer, we referenced this above in the re reference to uh, Howard Rourke and how Ayn Rand wanted to be asked about her, her thought, not her childhood, not her uh, friendships. But as a biographer, you were mainly interested in Rand's life, but hers was the life of a novelist and a philosopher. So how did you prepare for your discussion of her philosophy in particular? Well, I want to thank David Kelly right here and now, who was such a, um, a valuable mentor to me in that process. I spent a lot of time at, uh, 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 at that time it was called the Objectivist uh, Center, I think, um, at the Atlas Society's events. And um, he was willing to read things that I had written to make sure that I had understood things correctly. Um, so I, not only read um, as fastidiously as I could her, uh, her own writings, uh, but I also got wonderful instruction and some of the fine points from the people at the Atlas Society. So if you were to do a new printing of your biography with a new foreword, uh, what new reflections or insights might you add uh, in terms of your thought on Rand's life in the decade since it was published? Well, you know, I hadn't given much thought at the time I published the book to um, the idea that Ayn Rand is, you know, that the fact that she's a woman has been so, so, uh, I think if she'd been a man and had produced the, the things she, she did, she would have been uh, celebrated much more wild, widely and would have been um, character, caricatured uh, much less often. I think uh, I think she's a woman plays a huge part in the reaction that uh, many people have to her. I mean, how dare a woman, you know, question values of charity or you know, um, selflessness. Um, I think that has played a part. And I think I, I would want to examine that a little bit. I think I'd also be tempted to point out that the current president of the United States would not have been beloved of Ayn Rand, at least according to the way I read her. It's more like a, um, a James Taggart uh, crossed with Wesley Leach. And um, I don't want to offend anyone here, but uh, I, I think based on the way she responded to the politicians of her own time, she wouldn't have thought that he was a hero. 
Uh, other than that, I, I don't know. You know, I wasn't writing a treatise or um, I was just writing her life and I was very happy with it. So um, I th we may have covered this, but uh, Kim Fredrickson wants to know which future book about Ayn Rand has not been yet written yet and uh, that you would like to read. I was kind of, we were talking about what you might like to write and you're talking about an interest in, uh, in women and culture. Um, but I think you and I have talked a little bit about some other areas of scholarship that might be ripe for further investigation. Um, you know, I think the, isn't the Jewish Lives series at Yale um, in the middle of producing a short life of Ayn Rand? Am I wrong about that? You know oh, about I know you and I discussed it. We'll, we'll look into that. Um, and I think a short life, uh, you know, that just, it, it doesn't dwell, I dwell on the details of her life, but on the broad swoop of accomplishment, uh, of overcoming an accomplishment and love and, you know, uh, and fulfillment uh, of her mission uh, would be fantastic. Um, I'd be interested myself to be, to talk about it on a, on a micro level. I'd be interested in anything that would be newly discovered about the details of her Jewish heritage or uh, what she knew or felt about that. I wasn't able to find out much. Maybe there's not much to find out, but I always thought that um, in some ways, Howard Rourke is a beautiful answer to anti-Semitism, you know, trying to keep people constrained, not to let them do what their talents and their gifts in that time and that place. You know, Eastern Europe and Central Europe in, 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 the, uh, in the 1900s and 1910s. Um, you know, she, she, uh, she set the most gifted people free. And I, I, I sense that that has to do with uh, her Jewish, but I don't know. And I'd love some scholarship on that. Subject. Yeah, I, I would as well. I, I think it's interesting that um, you see an overrepresentation among uh, at least objectivist ranks. I'm, I'm not talking about people that just you know read the books and, and like it, but that those who are sort of more official card-carrying objectivists among lapsed Catholics and uh, Jews. And I, I'm a product of both of those. <laughs> so I guess I got the double, double Ayn Rand, uh, at, at least, uh, predisposition, if not predetermination. Um, and as such, though, I find there's interesting resonances with the books. My parents eloped because of religious differences or uh, maybe prejudices or expectations uh, from their, their, uh, their respective families. And then, um, yeah, just also knowing, as you described in the book, that um, Ayn Rand's mother at least held Sabbath and that uh, Rand was rejecting of that, but uh, so that there was a dynamic that also played out between mother and daughter and there was tension on other things. I mean, Ayn Rand didn't have an a easy time being a, a child. She was uh, kind of new. She, 
knew what you wanted to do and um, couldn't wait to grow up in many ways. I'd like to hear what your questioner thinks would be an interesting, uh, what, what would interest her in new scholarship about Ayn Rand? Well, let's see. She was she was asking um, she was asking us. But uh, Kim, why don't you come online and, and tell us? And all of you would love to hear what areas, if any, are you interested in seeing further um, biographical scholarly study on? Um, Nail Bank Nail J Bank asks uh, what you, Anne, think of Frederick Bastiat and his writings. I'm not sure. Anne is more of a biographer than someone who's primarily interested in political philosophy and economics. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting to be asked that because just now I'm working on a proposal for another book that I am tentatively calling The Remnant after the idea of Albert J. Nock, that there are a few people in every generation who may not know each other, but who independently carry ideas that mm. they acquire in some of the same places into the next generation. And one of the, uh, if there was a remnant, uh, I'm thinking about in the 1930s uh, in, in the US and the early 1940s, I think, um, Bastiat and von Mises were both uh, formative influences on that. So I'm just starting to think about Bastiat and I'm grateful to be asked about it, but I can't say much that's sensible at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in terms of areas that people would like to see more biographical um, elaboration and investigation, Bill McLaughlin says he'd like to see more of her Aristotelian influence. Bill, I uh, recommend that you come back. Uh, first of all, I recommend you join our Atlas Intellectuals where you'll be able to talk with uh, Stephen Hicks, our senior scholar, and delve a little bit more deeply into um, to the philosophical parallels uh, between Rand, those that she claimed as an influence. Um, Chris would like to know, does Anne see any parallels between, oh, this is a great question, Chris. Uh, any parallels between Rand and Arendt other than the fact that you both, that you did biographies of both of them? <laughs> Absolutely, it's kind of fascinating. Um, so Ayn Rand was born in uh, 1905 in St. Petersburg and Hannah Arendt was born in 1906. Maybe seven or eight months later in Konigsberg, which was a stone's throw, well, maybe, I don't know, 500, 600 miles from St. Petersburg. And um, they're the only two women that I know of who spent, who lived under the, um, lived in the, in the, the arc of fascism uh, as it rose and it died and who devoted their lives to uh, working against it, to, uh, to uh, revealing its horrors and its, uh, and its depredations. So they have that in common. Um, they were both fearless and, and uh, brilliant, and uh, they were very different in so many ways. Their minds worked so differently. 
but um, they were both uh, brave beyond belief, both immigrants, of course, from fascism to the United States, and both devoted their lives to waking Americans. We were so, you know, we're such powerful country up to the, you know, the uh, mistakes we were making about fascism. And so uh, we have an answer which we're going to follow up on, but uh, David Boas of uh, Cato uh, is here and he lets us know that Yale's Jewish Lives website says it has coming up Betty Friedan, Ruth Bader, Ginsburg, Spinoza, Anne Frank, and Ayn Rand, among others. So mm -hmm. that should be uh, that should be very, very interesting. A very good writer whose name I can't recall at the moment, who's working on, who's been assigned the Ayn Rand book. So it's something to look forward to. Uh, so what, uh, tell us just a little bit about what you have been doing and going through and a little bit about your quarantine story. What are you reading? What are you writing? What are you, told us a little bit about what you might be thinking of writing. Well, I must say I've gone through all of Trollope, which is okay. a lot. <laughs> maybe 2000 pages of Trollope. That was pleasant. Um, I'm not sure that what I'm reading and I'm uh, doing is all, all so very interesting. But one thing I am thinking about is how much in this particular period we're coming up upon where uh, so many, um, where we're all so divided and so confused about what liberalism is and what conservatism is. I think I'd like to write about early, you know, conservatism of the period when Ayn Rand was first learning what that meant in the United States. There were a lot of very, very interesting figures uh, around in, in, at that point. And uh, I, I would say more intellectual figures than we have on the scene now. People who thought and wrote and really wanted to define a way of American uh, conduct and politics that wasn't, uh, they were reacting against FDR and uh, they wanted uh, to preserve freedom. They believed in um, in things that I think we've forgotten. So that's what I re I've really been thinking about and hoping that I can come up with a story that is compelling enough that people will want to read about these characters they've never heard of before. Uh, the you know the last man standing of whom was William F. Buckley Jr. Of course. You know what I would love to do would be. Uh you know, we've done these living history projects, uh, which are, are fun and they're a bit amateurish, but, but they're just a, a attempt uh, to bring to life impersonations of historic um, figures. And I do one of Ayn Rand, which I love, love, love how much it triggers some people. But I would, it would be fun to do a, uh, almost a debate or a, a reconciliation between Buckley and Rand. And, uh, I've got a good good friend, um, Tony Dolan, who's a speechwriter, uh, who has a deep history with Buckley. So by the way, if you ever want to, that would be a good source for you. Boy, that, does that guy have um, a, a bird's uh, a sort of a, a seat uh, with a, a view of so much, so much history. But you know, both Buckley and Rand uh, were brilliant, but also they were characters. You know, they 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 um, they were characters. 
they embraced and even built on their characters. I mean, that's why I wear this. I mean, that's why Ayn Rand, you know, posed like that and presented herself in that fashion. So um, we have another question here uh, from Mark Shoup. It says, is Anne familiar with James Valiant's book, The Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics? Um, any thoughts on it? Yes, I, of course I'm familiar with it. It was, uh, I think it was published just about the time that I was starting this biography of Rand. And um, I, uh, I read it. Um, I had a highly annotated copy of it because he had, uh, he had discovered documents that I hadn't seen anywhere else. Um, I interviewed him um, and I referred to that book as I wrote my book, not without a lot of skepticism and doubt, but uh, it was very useful to me. And I think I haven't read it in a long, long time. So I can't tell you whether I think it's useful as a whole, as some as a, as a, a as something to read about Ayn Rand and the Brandons, it's primarily about the Brandons, um, or not. Um, I do think that it represents that moment in time when Ayn Rand's sex life had far too much importance to too many people. When my book was first published, um, you know, everyone wanted to re-debate the Brandon. Uh, revelations and debate them at, at a very, you know, macro level. And um, uh, James Valiant's book is based on the affair that Ayn Rand had with Nathaniel Brandon and what he thinks of as the dishonest ways that they represented their interaction with her over the years in their books. And uh, I think he has probably if I remember correctly, a point, but I think, I hope it's a point that we have all passed beyond into the realm of her literary accomplishment and her ideas. I think that's well said. Um, you referenced earlier uh, Barbara's book, The Passion of Ayn Rand, and um, I probably much more as a, as a de devotee, you know, I, I don't approach this as a, a biographer at all, but as a, uh, a fan of, of her work, of her philosophy, of her. And uh, while I, I thought that uh, Passion of Ayn Rand, I enjoyed the book, I couldn't stand the movie. And in part, it was because I felt that there was this tremendous uh, double standard that, that the, um, uh, that, that, that affair was allowed to overshadow it. I think though um, some of my, where I would defer from some who want to say it didn't happen or just completely squash it. And uh, you can't just hide things, you know, you, you, you have to acknowledge and then you move forward and you go through, right? So uh, I think this, to the extent that you're talking about, it was there but it is this very small uh, component of, of her life as opposed to um, everything else, which is fully represented in this book. 
So uh, I think that is about um, all of the time we have. I want to get to just one last question uh, from Jackie. I, I hope that Jackie Hood, it's Jackie and David. Um, she says, Ayn Rand was a wardrobe mistress at a motion picture studio, of course. Uh, did you find any information about the relationship of other employees with Ms. Rand? Do you think she could have been a business person, especially an entrepreneur? Many entrepreneurs are fans of, of Rand. I think if, if that's Jackie, it's the same Jackie that's written about uh, working uh, and continuing to work and not retiring. So yeah, about her time uh, working in, in wardrobe and about others who may have come into contact with her as, a, as an employee. Well, she, she made a good friend in the wardrobe department and that was Adrian. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, with whom she remained uh, close all her life um, or, or while she lived in California at the very least and I think afterward as well. Um, could she have been an entrepreneur? I think she could have been anything she was interested in being. She could have been a very successful entrepreneur if she cared about being an entrepreneur, but I don't think she did. I think she you know, loved uh, the idea of entrepreneurs, people who um, you know, make their own uh, world in a way, their own companies, they invent things, they make them, they produce them, they create um, all sorts of things for the rest of us and, and sh uh, who should be rewarded um, accordingly. And I think that's why entrepreneurs love Ayn Rand. Uh, I never saw any sign that she wanted to start a business. In fact, I would say in her life, uh, uh, Nathaniel Brandon was the entrepreneur in her life. If there was a business that came from her work and her thought, it was he who had the drive and the talent to monetize it, or at least to publicize it, to make it uh, something of a thriving operation rather than simply um, a writer sitting in her study, uh, writing down her ideas and publishing them, letting, you know, letting the chips fall where they may. Um, so no, I, I don't think so, but um, she certainly uh, celebrated entrepreneurialism. Yeah, and I think, I think understood it and understood entrepreneurs, otherwise she could not have written so compellingly about many of the entrepreneurial heroes that she celebrated in her books. So I know Anne could go on for another hour. I could go on for another hour. I'm sensing there is a, a friend of the, someone in the household behind there who is um, <laughs> ready to go for a walk. So, uh, so we're going to thank Anne. Thank you for joining us. Thank all of you for joining us uh, today. Um, and uh, we'd love to have Anne back at a future episode and, uh, and want to stay up to date on your work. So thank you, Anne. Thank you, Jennifer. It was a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank, thank you, everybody. Again, I'm Jennifer Grossman, CEO of the Outlet Society. If you enjoyed this video, if you want to support our work, uh, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at theatlassociety.org. Remember, our board is matching all new and increased donations this year. Um, I saw we have a lot of 
fun, feisty comments about politics and about uh, the president and the election in the comment stream. So I want to encourage all of you to come and join us next week. It's going to be super feisty, but I'm not going to be here. Um, I'm actually going to be off next week and uh, you're going to get an upgrade. However, my replacement is our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks, and he will be interviewing Victor Davis Hanson. So come back then, keep it spicy, and everybody have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Love you all.